Open your Bibles up to Ephesians chapter 5. If you have one of our Bibles from the welcome tables, it's on page 1038. We're going to look at verses 1 through 21 today. And now last week was an encouragement for believers who are grieved with their remaining sin, right? That, that's something we should be tender uh, uh, toward our sin that, that remains. We shouldn't be callous toward it. And so last week was, was, this, um, was this encouragement for those who, who maybe go too far that way and, and, and almost into self-condemnation for your sin. We need to grieve over it, but we don't condemn ourselves in it. We'll talk a little bit more about that today. That was an encouragement for believers last week. This week is an exhortation then for believers who may be indifferent about their sin. If last week was the encouragement, this week is the challenge, right? And so as believers, we need both. We need both encouragement. We need to be comforted by the word of the Lord, but we also need to be convicted by the word of the Lord. The Spirit does both together, all for our conformity to Christ. We need to be able to rest in Christ's finished work, and at the same time, we need to be obedient to the work that he's called us to do, right? We talked about this in chapter 2. Paul said it. God saved us through faith in Christ, but he did what? Gave us good works that he prepared in advance for us to do, right? And so it's two sides of the same coin here. We need to stop thinking and behaving like our old dead selves and start thinking and behaving according to the holiness that we've been given in Christ. And so even if you're not indifferent to your sin at this particular moment in your life, you still need to take this passage to heart this morning because we all ebb and flow in our sensitivity toward our sin and our desire to be obedient to Jesus. I think we can all relate to that, right? And so it's a, it's a longer passage, but I want to read it in its entirety and then ask for the Lord's help and we'll, we'll dig into the message this morning. So here it is, Ephesians 5, 1 through 21. Therefore, be imitators of God as dearly loved children and walk in love as Christ also loved us and gave himself for us, a sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. But sexual immorality and any impurity or greed should not even be heard of among you, as is proper for the saints. Obscene and foolish talking or crude joking are not suitable, but rather giving thanks. For no one recognize this. Every sexually immoral or impure or greedy person who is an idolater does not have an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty arguments, for God's wrath is coming on the disobedient because of these things. Therefore, do not become their partners, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists of all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Testing what is pleasing to the Lord. Don't participate in the fruitless works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to mention what is done by them in secret. Everything exposed by the light is made visible. For what makes everything visible is light. Therefore it is said, get up, sleeper, and rise up from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Pay careful attention then how you live, not as unwise people, but as wise making the most of the time because the days are evil. So don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. And don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless living, but be filled by the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making music with your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that your spirit dwells in us 
so that we can understand your word and know Christ better and be conformed more into his likeness. Help us to humbly receive it, give us the desire to obey it, and strengthen our faith to believe that what you have called us to here is possible, not in and through us, but in and through Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What does God think about you when you sin? What do you think about you when you sin? As Christians, we've all been forgiven for, our all, for all of our past sins, all of our, or all of our sins, past, present, and, and future, right? Because Christ died in our place on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. This is what we've come to know and believe. There is no sin in our lives that Jesus hasn't covered with his own blood if you are a believer in Christ, if you've put your faith in him. But as Christians who live between the already of salvation and the not yet of eternal glory, we have yet to be completely free of sin. And everyone gives a heart, heartily, hearty amen, right? That's why God's grace is so important for every day of our lives. But we can be tempted, and I think we probably often are more, or often we are more often than uh, we maybe care to admit, but we can be tempted to use grace to downplay our sin and let ourselves off the hook when it comes to obeying God in living a life of holiness. We know that we'll never be able to live up to God's standard of righteousness, probably because we tend to focus on our own efforts and instead of the finished effort of Christ. And so what happens is we end up settling for a level of righteousness that's good enough in our own minds, and as a result, we don't make every effort then to rid ourselves of the sin that remains in us. Instead, we resign ourselves to believe that, that we need to just accept the sin that remains in us because we can't overcome it, and ultimately it doesn't matter because Christ has already paid for it, so God accepts it too. But you need to hear me. This is a lie that we deceive ourselves with. This is a lie that we hear from others. God accepts us. He does not accept our sin. The cross has made that clear. Christ redeems people from their sin, but he never allows them to remain in it. Grace is never an excuse for sin. It's a covering for it. And grace is what compels us as followers of Jesus to live holy lives that are pleasing to God. And that's because grace is not just a thing. Grace is a person. It's Jesus Christ himself. And through his life, his death, and his resurrection, Jesus has become our covering. And he's become our righteousness. And through faith in his finished work, we've now been given the right to be called children of God. And so our main thought for the passage this morning, Paul's going to tell us that as children of God, we need to be imitators of God. As children of God, we must be imitators of God. And in our passage, we're going to see that we must walk as, uh, in love as children of love because God is love. We must walk as children of light in light because God is light. And we must walk in wisdom as children of wisdom because God is wisdom. We need to walk in love as children of love because God is love. Look at verses 1 through 4. Therefore, be imitators of God as dearly loved children, and walk in love as Christ also loved us and gave himself for us, 
a sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. But sexual immorality and any impurity or greed should not even be heard of among you, as is proper for the saints. Obscene and foolish talking or crude joking are not suitable, but rather giving thanks. So we see there's a therefore, right? Last week we said, when you see a therefore, you got to ask, what's the therefore, therefore? Paul is rooting these commands in his reader's new identity in Christ. Everything that he said up to this point, this is the, the therefore. Read the whole letter up until this point, and Paul's like, therefore, okay? In chapter 1, he told the, these Ephesian believers that God chose them in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him, and he predestined them to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself according to the good pleasure of his will. In chapter 2, Paul told them that they've been made alive with Christ even though they were dead in trespasses and sins. And they've been reconciled to Jewish believers and recreated into one new man to form uh, uh, from the two groups resulting in peace. In chapter 3, he reminded them that they are co-heirs with the Jewish Christians, members of the same body and partners in the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And in chapter 4, he reminded them that they've been sealed by the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption, and he urged them to live worthy of the calling they have received. And and in view of all of that, here in chapter 5, Paul tells his readers, therefore, as dearly loved children, imitate your heavenly father by imitating your older brother, Jesus. He says, walk in love, but not just any kind of love here, right? Like we can't just read that, that passage and define what, what, what uh, love is according to our own understanding. Paul's commanding them to live in a love that, that can only be defined by Christ himself. It's a love that compelled Jesus to give himself for us as a sacrifice for our sins, Fragrant offerings in the Old Testament gave off an aroma that was uh, pleasing to God. Christ gave himself as a fragrant offering that was pleasing to God. So when we put these things together, we can, def- t- we can come up with a definition of love that Paul is, is, is meaning here. It's, it's love that is self-giving and sacrificial with the aim to please our Heavenly Father. It's not sensual or erotic love that's fixated on pleasing oneself. The Greek word that Paul uses for sexual immorality in in verse 3 is a summary word that refers to all sexual activity outside of a lifelong covenantal marriage between one man and one woman as God created them to be. Impurity and greed take us back to to chapter 4 verse 19. It says, they became callous and gave themselves over to promiscuity for the practice of every kind of impurity with a desire for more and more. Paul tells his readers, listen, this this shouldn't even be heard of among you, let alone practiced among you. It's not fitting for saints to live like sinners. It's not proper for believers to behave like unbelievers. It's not suitable for obscene and foolish talking or crude joking to come out of our mouths. The picture in verse 4 is that of a drunk man who staggers around saying crass and vulgar things to try to get a rise out of people, get a laugh. Paul says this is out of character for Christians. 
And I think if we would be honest, we would admit that sometimes we try to quote unquote sanctify crude jokes by changing the context in which we tell them, right? We might not say something in front of a, 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 a group of unbelievers because we don't want it to, to hurt our witness. But we'll crack a joke off in front of another believer because we assume that they know that we don't really mean it. We just think it's funny, right? I've been guilty of that. Paul says there's no place for that kind of talk to come out of the mouth of a believer. Instead, he says, you should readily give thanks. Why? Because it turns our focus off of ourselves and onto God. And because it keeps us from taking for granted the inheritance that God has waiting for us. Look at verse 5. For no one recognized this. Every sexually immoral or impure or greedy person who is an idolater does not have an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. No one recognized this. In other words, what I'm about to say is a certainty that you can be sure of. The kingdom of God will not be full of sexually immoral, impure, or greedy people. Why? Because they live in disobedience to God as a way of life. Paul made a clear distinction back in chapter 2 that the ruler of the power of the air is at work in the disobedient, literally sons of disobedience. And here he's saying as children of God, sons of disobedience are, are, are children of the devil. They're not children of God, of God. Excuse me. God's inheritance is reserved for those whom he's adopted as his own children. The disobedient have no inheritance in God's kingdom. They're excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them and because of the hardness of their hearts, Ephesians 4.18. God's wrath awaits these people unless they turn to Christ and repent for their sinful way of life. This was true for us, right? As a believer, you remember this. You should. We were headed, destined as children of wrath, but God, who's rich in mercy because of his great love for us, made us alive in Christ Jesus when we were dead in our sins and trespasses. Paul emphasizes that the root of greed is idolatry. A greedy person worships the things of the world and is consumed with desire for created things rather than the creator himself. But God makes it very clear in his word that he is God and he alone. And we shall have no other gods before him. Now, I need to, to, to pause here and, and interject something because what, what I don't want the, the tone of this message to, to be this week is, is condemnation for us because we fail hands down at this. Last week, remember, last week was the encouragement for us. This week is the exhortation. But last week, we all admitted that sometimes we think and we say and we do things that look more unchristian than they do Christian, that we do things and we say things and we think things that are contrary to Christ and the gospel. And that's because even as Christians who are being remade in Christ's image, we still have sin that lingers in our lives, right? No, nobody's, nobody's arguing with that. But we need to understand this, that lingering sin in our lives as believers does not cause us to lose our inheritance, in the kingdom of God. Our place, and listen, this is such 
a relieving truth here. As a follower of Christ, our place in God's kingdom is not dependent upon our ability to keep it reserved for ourselves through our obedience to God. Praise God, right? We have a place in God's kingdom because Christ has purchased it for us through his life of obedience, through his death on the cross for our disobedience, and through his resurrection for our life. And the Holy Spirit has sealed us so that we will receive what Christ has earned for us in spite of our own failures. So if you're struggling with sin, which we all are, and you're grieved by it, be encouraged that you're grieved by it. Because that's evidence that the Spirit is keeping your heart tender toward Christ and building a hatred for the sin that remains in you. Paul's making a clear distinction here between those who are God's children and those who are not. Between those who give evidence of new life in Christ and those who continue to walk around dead in their transgressions and sins. And he warns his readers, don't confuse these two. Don't confuse these two. He says, let no one deceive you with empty arguments. In other words, don't let anyone convince you with, uh, with attempts to justify or downplay these sinful behaviors. God does not excuse these behaviors and neither should you. God justifies the sinner. He never justifies the sin. And the way God justified us was by condemning his own son in our place on the cross and for our sin. Romans 8, 3 and 4, he condemns sin in the flesh by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering in order that the law's requirement would be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Don't let anyone try to convince you that you can be a Christian and continue to live in sin without regard for consequences. Jesus isn't your ticket to heaven while you live like hell on earth. The cross makes it clear that our sin has devastating consequences. There, there's no dressing this up. The Son of God was tortured and he was murdered. He was executed on the cross because of our sin. Because we chose to live for ourselves instead of God. But the resurrection makes it clear that Christ's death on our behalf has life-changing consequences for all who are united to him through faith. Those who've been crucified with Christ through faith have also been raised with Christ through faith to live in a new way through faith. So we love God with all our heart and our soul and our mind and our strength, and we love our neighbor as ourselves. We sacrifice for the good of others. We make it our aim to please God, not to appease God, but to please Him because we love God and because we're loved by God. We become imitators of the one who rescued us from death and gave us life. We walk as children of love in love because God is love. And we walk in light as children of light because God is light. Look at verse 7. Therefore, do not become their partners, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of light consists of all goodness, righteousness, and truth, testing what is pleasing to the Lord. 
Paul's not telling his readers to avoid unbelievers altogether, right? In his first letter to the Corinthians, he touches on this too. He says, listen, you'd have to leave the world if that was the case. We can't avoid every single person because the world is so full of darkness. What he's doing is he's telling his readers not to join unbelievers in their sin. He's not saying don't be near them. Don't join in with them. Literally, don't cast your lot with them. Don't share in their ways. And then he summarizes what he said in the last half of chapter 4 with this statement. For once you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. You see, Paul roots every command that he gives back to the identity that, that we've been given in Christ. So you've taken off the, the old self and you've put on the new. Be who you now are, right? Live as children of light. That Greek word for live is the same word used for walk in verse 2. It's this idea of a way of life, this, this, this going forward in the same direction. The command here is to walk as children of light who, who test what is pleasing to the Lord. How do we do that? Psalm 119, 105 says, your word is a lamp for my feet and a what? A light to my path. Psalm 119, 130, the revelation of your words brings light and gives understanding to the inexperienced. So how do we walk as children of light? By walking in the light of God's word. That's why I said at the beginning, like, this is what God has given us. We need to have this open. We need to take this in. If this stays closed, guess what? There's no light. We walk in the light of God's word. And what does his word tell us that is pleasing to the Lord? His son, the word made flesh. In multiple places, the gospel authors record the words of God the Father saying, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him, right? In John's gospel, Jesus says, I have come as light into the world so that everyone believes in, who believes in me would not remain in darkness. We walk as children of light by walking with the one who is light, Jesus Christ, and living according to his word that gives us light. We need to see the benefit in that. We do so by the power of the Spirit who, as Paul says, earlier in Ephesians, enlightens the eyes of our hearts so that we may know what is the hope of his calling, what is the, health, the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the mighty working of his strength. Paul talks about the fruit of the light here. Doesn't that sound like the fruit of the Spirit, right? They're interchangeable, aren't they? It consists of all goodness, righteousness, and truth. This, this stands in stark contrast to sexual immorality, impurity, and greed and the fruitlessness that they produce. Look at verse 11. Don't participate in the fruitless works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to mention what is done in secret by them. Everything exposed by the light is made visible. For what makes everything visible is light. Therefore, it is said, get up, sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. When Paul came, first came to Ephesus, I believe it's uh, Acts chapter 19, somewhere in there, 
um, you can read about this. The, the city was full of pagan worship. It was full of cult practices that involved these things, sexual immorality, impurity, greed. But as he preached the gospel of the, uh, there, many of them turned from the dark practices of the occult and they entrusted themselves to Christ. And you know what happened? The people that, that practiced magic, they brought all of their books and all of their, 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 the, the resources that they used and they burned them in front of everyone. And they stopped buying idols that the, that the silversmiths made and they stopped worshiping at the, the temple of the false goddess Artemis. The whole economy that the, that the city was, was uh, built on crumbled because people turned from darkness to light. Paul's readers understand what it means to expose the fruitless works of darkness and to stop participating in them. But we need to make sure that we understand what Paul is getting at here. He says it's shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret, in, in secret literally in the darkness. He tells his readers, don't participate in their shame. Instead, shine light on their dark deeds and in the hopes that they will see their shame and turn to the one who is light and who will remove their shame. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 5, 14 through 16. In John's gospel, he said, I am the light while I'm here. Well, guess what? He's sitting at the right hand of the throne of God in heaven. Now he says, you are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand, and it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. We need to see, we need, we, we need to help others see the fruitless works of darkness for what they are. We need to help them understand what they look like, and we need to do that without participating in those works ourselves. If the fruit of the light consists of all goodness and righteousness and truth, then we must expose the fruitless works of darkness with what? Goodness and righteousness and truth. We expose darkness with our own words and actions that are the fruit of the light that lives within us. The spirit who is light gives us illumination to understand how to live, and that's reflected to others. We need to contend for the gospel without being contentious toward people. That means that we never point out sin. This is important. We never point out sin to condemn others, but to warn them. One is placing ourselves over them. The other is placing ourselves next to them in love. Why? Because we know that there's nothing hidden that will not be revealed and nothing concealed that will not be brought to light. Mark 4.22. And no creature is hidden from him, but all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of him who, to whom we must give an account. Hebrews 4.13. We understand the reality. God is light. In him there's no darkness at all. 1 John 1.5. And God's light exposes the true nature and character of every person's works. And as those who have been rescued from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of the Son, He loves. Colossians 1, 13 and 14. The most loving thing that we can do for others is to shine the light of the gospel into their lives right now 
and pray that God would rescue them too. The alternative is for us to remain silent and let them continue to live in darkness till the day of judgment when Christ returns to expose all things, when light shines on everything. Reveals them for what they truly are and God pours his wrath out on the disobedient because they rejected his son. Those are our options. Paul says light is what makes everything visible. And as those who've had our own hearts exposed by the light of God's truth and grace, do you remember that? I don't know how long you've been a believer. Maybe you're not a believer yet. Maybe you've been one for years so far that that you don't even remember that that moment when you realize that the gospel is truth. And the Lord pierced your heart. But when that happened, you, you became tender, not calloused. You became grateful, not greedy. The Lord brought you to himself in love. He didn't turn you away. We need to understand and remember what grace has done for us. We ought to want others to experience that now too, right? While salvation is still possible. Therefore, it is said, get up, sleeper, and rise up from the dead and Christ will shine on you. It's verse 14. Paul's not quoting a direct passage from the Old Testament here. Most likely, he's quoting a, a lyric from a, an early church hymn that, that the Ephesian churches would have recognized based on some Old Testament passages. It's a call for unbelievers to come to Christ and receive his life-giving his, his life light. And believer, it needs to be your call to unbelievers that God has placed in your life. To expose the fruitless works of darkness doesn't mean that we go stand on the street corner and shout fire and brimstone messages at people as they pass by. It does mean that we live in goodness, that we live in righteousness and truth among our unbelieving friends and family and coworkers and neighbors and classmates. Literally anybody that has a heartbeat that's next to you, right? It means that we're honest about sin when we see it. We don't downplay it. We don't make excuses for it. We call it what it is. But it means that we're loving toward those who are still caught in it and practice it. It means that we share the gospel freely with them and we beckon them to trust Christ to help them see that he's far greater and far better. It means that we live in a way that reflects the light of the gospel, that, 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 that we are being recreated in Christ's image and that it is changing and continues to change our own lives so that those who walk in the darkness can see the difference when they're standing next to us. Not so that we look better than them, but so they can see Christ clearly. Living as children of light means that we don't live according to the ways of this world, which means that more often than not, we cannot and we must not conform to the beliefs and the patterns and the practices of, that are popular in our culture. Because the world lives in spiritual darkness. 
It also means that we can't trivialize church membership because to be partners in the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, Ephesians 3, 6, necessarily means that we can't be partners with those who participate in the fruitless works of darkness as a way of life. We need to walk in light as children of light because God is light. We need to walk in wisdom as children of wisdom because God is wisdom. Look at verse 15. Pay careful attention then how you live, not as unwise people, but as wise, making the most of the time because the days are evil. So don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. And don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless living, but be filled by the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making music with your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. When Paul wrote this letter some 2,000 years ago, the days were evil. Not a lot's changed since then, right? The world continues to live in darkness and rebellion against the God who created it, but God continues to rescue people from this dark world and redeem them from the curse of sin and the sting of death. And Paul says that as people who have been redeemed, people who have been rescued, we should pay careful attention then to how we're living in this dark world. We need to walk in wisdom, not foolishness. Because the days we live in are evil, we too should make the most of the time that we've been given on this earth. The phrase literally means to redeem or to buy back the time. Psalm 90 verse 12 says, teach us to number our days carefully so that we may develop wisdom in our hearts. If we just prayed that verse every day this week, I think God would give us a different perspective. Our time on this earth is not our own. Why? Because our lives on this earth are not our own. Remember that you've been purchased at a price. Christ has redeemed you for himself, not for yourself. And God has designated this moment in history for us to live in love and in light as gospel beacons in a darkened world, full of evil. And he's given us everything we need through his son, through his word, by his spirit, and through his church, so that we can be faithful to do what he's called us to do. The antidote to foolishness is wisdom, and the aim of wisdom is to understand what the Lord's will is. That doesn't mean that we try to figure out all the nuances of God's specific will for our individual lives. It doesn't mean we, we try to rack our brains all day long to figure out what God has specifically for us this day. Or why, why he's allowed certain things to happen in our lives. We may never figure that out this side of eternity. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, The hidden things belong to the Lord our God, but the revealed things belong to us and our children forever so that we may follow all the words of his law. God has revealed his will to us in his word. Again, you close this, you have darkness, not light. You open this, you have the mind of God. You have the will of God. You have the purpose that God has designed all of us to live in. Scripture tells us that what God, or what God is ultimately up to. Paul, Paul reminded his readers of this in Ephesians 1, 9, and 10. He said, 
He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure that he purposed in Christ as a plan for the right time to bring everything together in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth in him. And verse 11 and 12 tell us that God works out everything in agreement with the purpose of his will so that those who put their hope in Christ might bring praise to his glory. God is taking everything and uniting it together in Jesus so that everything that's united praises the one who united them. He's working his grand plan of redemption through the pages of Scripture and all of human history. We need to hear this. We would be wise to organize our lives around the priority of that plan and our participation in it. That means that no matter what changes in our culture or in our personal lives, our purpose remains the same. We can be sure of it to make Jesus known to the people around us by sharing the hope of the gospel with them and living that hope out in our lives. So when the foundations of life that our world foolishly lays begin to crumble under the stress of things like a global virus, just weird weather events, the hostility of the human heart, we don't fear as the world fears. We don't lose hope as the world loses hope. We don't get angry as the world gets angry. We stand firmly on the foundation of Jesus Christ with the understanding that he continues to build his church in the midst of a world that's falling apart. The darkness is crumbling and the light is raising up. It's good for us to remember that there is no event in human history that has ever or will ever thwart the will of God and his plan of redemption in Christ from the fall all the way to the return of Jesus. Genesis to Revelation, God is unfolding his plan and not just revealing it, but carrying it out. That doesn't mean that it doesn't matter how we specifically respond to people or issues or events, or that it's always even easy to determine what our right response should be in those specific things. But here's what it does mean. It means that we understand that our response must always be driven by what God has revealed to us in his word and not simply by our own good guess or intuition or by the popular culture and their response. Verse 18, Paul tells his readers, don't get drunk with wine. He doesn't say don't drink. He doesn't say it's okay to get drunk, just not on wine. He says don't get drunk because it leads to reckless living. It leads to saying and doing things without concern for the consequences. In other words, it leads to sexual immorality, impurity, and greed and attempts to excuse those things with empty arguments. 1 Thessalonians 4, 7, and 8. For God has not called us to impurity, but to live in holiness. Consequently, anyone who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who gives you his Holy Spirit. You see, we're not to be influenced by a substance. We are to be influenced by the Spirit of the living God. Paul says, be filled with the Spirit. He's not talking about a one-time filling here. He's talking about a lifetime of surrender to the indwelling Spirit's control. It's, it's a regular, everyday way of life that's concerned with following the Holy Spirit's lead so what as not to grieve the Holy Spirit like we learned about last week by our sin and disobedience. 
Be filled by the Spirit can also be translated, be filled by the means of the Spirit. Be filled is the main verb in verses 18 through 21 in the Greek. And then Paul gives four participles that modify it to show how we are to be filled by the Spirit. He says, speaking, singing, giving, and submitting. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs is a poetic way to teach one another the wondrous truths of the gospel that are found in Scripture. Paul did this in verse 14 when he quoted that line from an early hymn, right? Songs teach. I guarantee you, you won't leave today humming the main points of the message. You'll leave today humming the words of the songs we're going to sing at at the close. Singing and making music with your hearts to the Lord is a natural overflow of the joy that you have in Christ. We don't just simply speak psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We sing them. They're not just a teaching tool. They're an expression of praise. Giving thanks for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Probably a little more difficult for us to do than to teach one another or to sing, right? But thankfulness to God guards our hearts against obscene and foolish talking or crude joking, and it keeps us from greed because our thankfulness is rooted in the self-sacrificing love that Jesus has for us. And it's evidence that the Spirit is actively leading us because thankfulness deepens our fellowship with the Father and the Son through the Spirit. Submitting to one another may be the most difficult out of these four, especially when we put it into the context that Paul does in the upcoming verses that we'll look at next week. But the heart of submission is the fear of Christ, not terror, but awe, reverence, love, respect. Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and discipline. Voluntarily, voluntarily yielding oneself to another in love This is what is meant by submission. This is not only a reflection of wise living, it's evidence of spirit-filled living. Are you paying careful attention to how you walk? Are you making the most of the time that God has given you? Do you understand what the Lord's will is? Are you yielding regularly to the spirit who dwells in you? We need to walk in wisdom as children of wisdom because God is wisdom. As children of God, we must be imitators of God. As Christians, we must understand that we have been changed and that we are being changed. We need to live both in the freedom of knowing that our sins are forgiven and our condemnation is removed and in the obligation to live in the holiness that we now have in Christ. Two sides of the same coin. We must neither condemn ourselves nor condone the sin that remains in us. We must be who we now are. This is the call. We need to walk in love as children of love because God is love. If we're going to imitate him, that's how we need to walk. We need to walk in light as children of light because God is light. We need to walk in wisdom as children of wisdom because God is wisdom. In his self-giving love, he has made us alive through the light of of the gospel according to his wise plan of redemption accomplished through his son and applied to us by his spirit all to the praise of his glorious grace amen would you pray with me lord we thank you for your love 
We thank you for your light. We thank you for your wisdom that you've freely given to us in Christ and your spirit and your word. And we pray that as your church, as your children, you would help us to be imitators of our heavenly father for your glory, for our good. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.